Welcome to another episode of Kids Eat Toast Sometimes. Again, we've gone without toast, proving to be a, a bit of a sellout in that domain, but what can you do? Tonight, yet another exciting guest. Some say the Jared Leto of Cape Town, he's done it all. And joining me tonight is Benjamin Defty. Ben, how are you doing, my friend? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sam. No toast again. No toast again. I don't know. I've got like three subscribers on YouTube. I think uh, it's time I sell my soul. So here we are. All right. And how, how's the lockdown treating you? It's the most standard question right now, but it's one worth asking. Oh, fair enough. Um, the lockdown's been all right. Fortunately, I've been able to work from home. So that's keeping me sane. The walls haven't started to close in just yet, Sam. Okay, nice. And jogging? Have you have you done the jogging yet, or hey, you haven't ventured that? I far have. Out? I have done the jogging. Um, I mean, the yeah, I'm trying to get my five k's in when I can. Um, but otherwise, I start work at eight, so there's a bit of a time constraint there. But I have started working out for the first time in my life. I know that's the odd, like whole, uh, not problem, but situation that arises from this. People have never worked out in their lives before are big inserts. I just can't run with a mask on. I can't do it. I find it. I mean, that's why I've just stopped doing it. I'm not making a confession on a podcast <laughs> running without a mask, but no, I just find it a very terrible experience. No, it's, it's not fun. And then you're trying to lift it up and someone runs past you and you're worried about contracting it. No, it's a nightmare. But yeah, I get you. Not fun. But it's almost like um, the coronavirus has like stopped subtle racism on certain walking and jogging paths because the old South Africa, even a couple of months ago, if there's a black person walking down the street and an elderly couple on the same side as him, they inevitably cross over to avoid any contact. But now that elderly couple will cross over for anyone. I'll be walking down the streets of jogging and they get away from me, which I think is good. Uh, I suppose it's a, it's a limiting, limiting factor. Um, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. I know. Corona is coming for racism too, which is cool. But um, let's not dance around it too much. I actually hate talking about the coronavirus because it just dominates everything in our feeds and in our chats and in our minds. So let's, let's try to keep this about you and what you're doing in the creative scene, what you're doing in the working scene. And you've alluded briefly to the fact that you're waking up at 8 o'clock or starting work at 8 o'clock. What, what is that for? So um, I recently finished my undergrad in architecture at UCT. So I'm currently in, in a fourth year, which is like a practical year out where you, you try and gain some work experience. So that's what I'm currently doing. Um, so that's my, my sort of eight o'clock till, till five. What, what drove you to architecture? Because I remember at school you, had, you were multi-talented, you had all these different sort of projects and side hustles going. What, what was the final blow that uh, drew you towards architecture? I, I think it was an interest for a while. I've certainly from a young age, been interested in, in sort of making things. And, and that prompted me to take subjects like visual arts and, and physics in high school, which I really enjoyed. And I had to kind of um, consider how I could translate that to a future career path. And um, architecture seemed to be the, the most appropriate and I fell in love with it. Do you remember those grade 11 job shadows? Yeah, the grade 11 job shadow. That was, I just um, made up my job shadow and then went to my cousin's house for the week. I was, it was too terrible. I felt very guilty afterwards. Where, where did you end up? Going? Look, it's, pro it's probably the better option. I mean, I, I ended up job shadowing two architects. And when I submitted my, my written life orientation report to, I think it was Mr. Toy at the time, 
uh, she suggested that I, I consider a different career path. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is a slightly worse situation than you, I suppose. That's fantastic. You can pull up at Saks now and show your undergrad degree and all these fantastic prospects. I told you, would be. I told you, ma'am. Uh, school is such a weird, weird problematic place. I don't even think like at a at a Model C school or an all boys school rather that that arts was taken all that seriously. No, actually, yeah, it's um certainly there wasn't strong value placed on on creative interests and certainly more value was placed on sporting merit, which I always took issue with. And I enjoyed playing sport, but I was obviously heavily involved with with visual art, perform society, um, involved in the drama productions, and it, it never got the same amount of attention as as the sport I was involved with. And that was always a bit of an irritation. And I think it is a general thing across most Model C traditional same-sex schools in South Africa. Would you agree? No, definitely. I mean, you could argue that there's some artistic value in running over six foot giants but um <laughs> I, I i certainly think there 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 are massive limitations and i my experience at school was you were either creative or or you weren't those were the two boxes they tried to put people in so if you liked art and you could draw you were creative and if you couldn't draw you weren't and then you know, physics was now an option and or you had to be a first team cricketer or rugby player which which I find bizarre because drawing or art, like in terms of that form, is a tiny, tiny spectrum of the, the great creative field that art is. And I feel at a very early age, boys and girls, it doesn't matter what sort of school you're at, are really denied the right to become artistic and creative by these old weird barriers that have been like supporting schools for years. I, I completely agree. I think... Um... These, the schools certainly uh, present students with the, or I don't know if it's presented, but there, there, there is a, the parameters are set up where the binaries are suggested, like you're either sporty and then you fall into these, these sort of archetypal categories, um, which I think is largely quite harmful. And as you say, um, then the, the creatives are addressed as, as, okay, well, these are your options. You've got these, these, these conventions of visual art, which are painting and, and, and charcoal drawing, and, and that's respected amongst the small bubble of, of, you know, creative teachers, but it really doesn't, not enough emphasis is placed on it, and certainly not enough exploration. No, for sure. It's, it's, it's definitely a point we will, will agree on. And it leads, me, it leads me to my next point, so something I want to chat about with you, and that is your music. You're making music. You released that single the other day on Instagram and other platforms. Well, not on Instagram. God, I hate how Instagram's become this like central, seminal authority for putting content out. But anyway, tell us, tell us more about that. <laughs> um, so, so that single, Roll Deep Blue, I actually only featured on that single as a, as a guitarist and a vocalist. Um, but the, the track was produced by a friend of mine, a, a really talented producer, Byron Pretorius, who also made the beat. And it features two other very talented local artists um, who also happen to be friends of mine. A guy that goes by Saunter Steve, who's a, who's a rapper, and another guy, Tomasi, who kind of consulted the entire track. And, and I think he sang the pre-chorus as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, a creative of a collaboration between two young creatives, yeah. Fantastic. I've heard it. It's a banger of notes. But I like that rap consultancy. I think that's something, because I, I wish I could, but I just can't. 
um, I don't, don't have bars, so to say. So a rap consultancy, I think that sounds very appealing. And you also said you're working on an EP during this time? Yes, yeah, the, the current project I'm working on um, is an EP called You, Me and the Deity, uh, which is a concept EP. And it's a, it's a collaboration with a, another close friend and very talented musician, um, a guy called Christian Wing. And essentially the EP serves as a, well, attempts to serve as an exploration of, of a few genres like funk and, and a bit of psychedelic rock and some hip hop again. Um, and as well as a, a sort of intricate narrative that explores how these two young boys align themselves with the history of these, of these genres, which has me um, sort of acting out some very eccentric characters. So hopefully that's well received. That's fantastic. So where, where does this um, eccentricity come from? What's, what's the process? How do you dive into these sort of characters? Um, it's, it is sort of a first, the first time I'm attempting it in music and to, to portray that through, through song. But I, I suppose it's, it comes from a, a large resource of, of um, inspiration uh, that I've accumulated over the years, just watching cartoons and, and stuff. Like one of the, the central characters is based heavily on Mark Hamill's The Joker from, from the Dark Knight series that I used to watch when I was a kid. And, and so that kind of thing, certainly, yeah. Well, no, that's fantastic. But, and then almost just to go back a few steps to, the, to your architectural roots and where you see yourself working and as a profession, how do you kind of manage the time between the two? So it's, 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 uh, it's difficult. I think, um, look, when I went to university, music definitely took a bit of a sideline. I was involved in an indie rock band from the end of high school and I played in it uh, whilst entering university and it just became exceedingly difficult to maintain music on the, alongside my, my university work. So music took a bit of a sideline, but fortunately now being able to work with a, with a finite beginning and end to the day, I can pursue those creative projects after those hours, which is, which is great. So, yeah. Okay. So you, you've got this nine till five or eight till five, depending on which uh, slave driver is um, driving you, but what, what, where, where does your architectural ideology fall in? Are you more functional based? Are you very big in terms of aesthetic? Or are you trying to find a middle ground between the two? Well, you've alluded to it there, Sam. There certainly needs to be a balance between um, function and aesthetic. Um, and there's a generally accepted principle which was proposed by the American architect Louis Sullivan, I think towards the end of the, the sort of late 1800s, uh, which is this idea of form follows function. And um, what that essentially means is that function in design and function in buildings is of paramount importance and should serve as the, the kind of main informant for the way that the building expresses itself. So I don't think, I think it's very much a balance between the two, um, but function should come first in my opinion. But again, form follows function shouldn't govern all, all of architecture. Yeah, no, very, very nicely summed up there. The only architectural reference I could give you is Le Corbusier. I think I used to, like if I went out with architecture friends or people studying yes, the, the, core, the father of modernism there we well yeah i had a couple of lines and i'm like have a few beers and be like oh look and it got me by it got me by i think well of course, of course but and then an, another very interesting question because like i said I hate talking about it but it's undoubtedly changed the world forever is is what what are the knock-on effects of 
coronavirus in terms of imagining space, imagining design, how people will now congregate in the future. Have those sort of thoughts been um, not plaguing your mind, but popping up here and there? I've certainly been trying to follow it, and I think that um, there has been speculation as to as to what regulations will be put in place once the virus has passed, if it does pass, hopefully it does. Um, and those are mostly things like sort of restrictions like staircase width um, and, and lift capacity in the workplace. Um, but I also think that architects are going to have to reimagine the way that typologies like hospitals and, and, and public transport facilities are going to be structured. Um, yeah, I think, but I don't think the, the contemporary approach to architecture will change much in the next few years. I think there's quite a, there's quite a high emphasis placed on sustainability and, um, and sort of form making. And I think that that will, that will do well to, to help recover from the pandemic, if anything. But you don't think that um, this situation may like spiral completely out of control, not that it hasn't already. And that, like you said, the fundamentals of architecture will have to be revisited in terms of not only the way that let, let's look at transport, I mean, that's a macro issue, but on a, a more micro level, how restaurants are designed, how we socialize, and how these spaces that architects create, how they serve as not a barrier, but how they, because the, we're dealing with this modern problem of what is life post-corona going to look like? It's it it is it it's a difficult question, um, and I don't think I have a, a very direct answer. But I think that for sure things like like restaurants will have to fall under new restrictions and, and new regulations, and will have to be designed differently um, to accommodate what's happened um, and and to accommodate the potential threat of it happening again. But um, it's 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 also very difficult to reinvent the wheel. Uh, so so yeah. It's difficult to give an answer to that, Sam. No, I know. A bit of a tricky one, hey, putting you on the spot there. Like, how are you going to fix the coronavirus? <laughs> um, but no, it, the, the future at the moment does seem a, a bit bleak. Um, and I, I was watching, and I, I'm sure you would have seen snippets of it, but Elon Musk was on uh, the Joe Rogan experience again very recently. And I mean, when he starts it is a great podcast for sure. And, but when he starts talking about the future, part of me gets excited, but I'd say about 90% of my like body and brain starts like shitting itself because the future is very scary. But the main thing that, that caught my mind or that really caught my attention in that interview was when Elon Musk started... Hey, he sounds like a bit of a dick, eh? I'll just say that. But I suppose when you're that clever. <laughs> but Elon Musk started talking about like... Uh, fellow billionaires and how people feel sorry or not and how people have these harsh images of what billionaires are and how he's selling possessions and downgrading I mean like who cares but he brought up a very interesting point when discussing yeah. Warren Buffett and which led him segue onto his next point that he thinks there are a lot of fantastic intelligent people in the world but too many of them are going into finance and law what, what, what was your take on that sort of statement um so, so yeah, like you said in the context of that was was elon describing what the the needs of the manufacturing industry currently and um i think that look i, I don't agree with elon about everything but i think he, he certainly is right about what it takes to make things happen and i would agree with him in saying that too many people 
going into fields um, and studying fields that they've inherited from their, their parents and their siblings. And I think that, yeah, not enough people um, pursue their actual interests and, and, and what they have to offer the world. And that's a very, it's a very dystopian and, and, and dangerous thing, I suppose. Um, and I think applying that to architecture, architecture is the potential for great social change. Um, but that social change won't come about if people don't follow that path. So, so yeah, I, I would discourage people from just adopting and, and studying in fields um, that their parents told them to. No, for sure. I mean, of, of course, with anything, I mean, when we speak about it, it, it comes from a, a certain position of privilege. I am, I'm lucky enough that I don't have to go and study a commerce degree so that I'm, the minutes I leave uh, the university, I'm earning money for my family. I can be artsy farty. Of course, of course. Do what I want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there, there, it was it was something that really resonated with me because even if we tie it back to what we were speaking about earlier, in in schools, how you typecast to play a certain role from a very young age, it, it's just ridiculous. And the world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. The only thing that for me remains a constant is it is creativity, and it, it leads me on to my next point that I wanted to chat about, and. That revolves around South Africa's creative scene and more, more so it's, it's youth creative scene. And I'd love to hear your, your insights on that. So, so the creative scene is an interesting one. And I, I think I first became aware of it towards, again, towards the end of high school, um, which was this place to be previously described. I don't think valued creativity enough. And so you become aware of creatives outside of your immediate circle that are producing really impressive work. And that became, um, exponentially apparent entering university uh, and you're sort of overwhelmed with all these really impressive or people just making amazing stuff um, at, which is further compounded by by social media and so it, it adopted quite a large it's quite largely negative connotation for me I, it felt a lot like um, there was this this group of, of creatives that it, it sort of felt like an elite club that you have to be invited into, uh, which sounds um, silly, and it is silly. Um, but but yeah, it, it seemed a lot like your clout on, on social media determined your creative value, which is a largely quite a harmful thing. Um, but you soon realize how ridiculous that notion is and that there are so many talented young South African creatives that don't have the resources available to represent their work. Um, on social media and so it's 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 yeah that well i mean that's my experience with the the creative uh, um crowd as you say i absolutely love what you said there has been and even more so this false assignment of value to well i wouldn't say facebook facebook's a dead thing but a, a platform like instagram where it is quite literally the be all and end all and it sits very highly on this looking down at you as this figure of authority and a kind of based on followers and likes really assigns whether your work is worthy or not and that is just ridiculous and of course like you said my biggest gripe with the whole Cape Town creative scene is quite literally what you've said it then became this elite group of creatives or my favorite content creators <laughs> content <Fun>. creators <laughs> I mean, it, like you said, it's all about clout, and that that for me is 
the complete opposite of creativity. And, and don't get me wrong, platforms like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those sort of things, YouTube are wonderful in terms of what their core values are if you look at them and how you're going to produce content and you're able to disseminate information and show films and start podcasts. Of course, that's fantastic. But along the way, it's become this very perverse sense of who thinks what is good and I don't I I, th I just feel like whenever I put something out now I'm not even battling in terms of content I'm just fighting against this ethereal algorithm that I don't understand look I, I would agree um in saying that Instagram is a is the sort of I think you used the phrase ethereal algorithm um and but certainly on a smaller scale, it has very negative effects on creativity as well, which is people start um, seeing their, their overall feeds as uh, of paramount importance and the overall feed aesthetics of paramount importance instead of valuing individual um, posts. And, and I think that hinders creativity greatly. No, I, I completely agree. And again, if you love using Instagram or you like building a profile, that sort of stuff and having specific feed and like curtailing your content that's also super cool that's your own sort of creativity but I don't like how it's become the the be-all and end-all for or seemingly the be-all and end-all for for a creative but and moving away from Instagram and all of its algorithms what do you think of of the actual industry in terms of are there a lot of young people creating stuff in South Africa, could there be more? What, where do you stand? I think, I think that creatives are, there are some really great initiatives that are being um, started by young South African creatives um, that involve you know, everything from conservation to um, sort of menstruation awareness and period awareness uh, for, for young women. Um, and, and, and those kind of initiatives are very important and they are largely being led by young South African creatives um, who have the sort of natural natural resource to within their with, with their talents and all the rest, um, and so yeah. But whether or not more can be done, um, I'm not sure. What do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, I, of course, like you mentioned, there are a lot of fantastic young people making a lot of brilliant things out there, and, and uh, like I said, the internet's uh, provided a great platform for them to be found in some cases, but. I think there is a general trend and maybe you could even stretch it back to high school or maybe that's a bit tang tangential, but I think they, and I really can't speak uh, about Joburg because I've never been in that creative scene and apparently that's a place to be in South Africa, but certainly in Cape Town, I think there's a great fear of creating. Would you, would you share my sentiments? Would, you, would, I, would I share your sentiments? For sure. And could you expand a bit? I, know, I, I think Cape Town, and I'll use the word incestuous uh, quite lightly, I think it, it's become a very inward-looking city, especially for young people. So you, you're attached to social groups from quite a young age and almost forced to be confined or are forced to be confined in them. And that echo chamber that you now find, find yourself in is something that prescribes your values, what you do. So say whether it's starting a podcast or or um, you know releasing an EP or developing an EP, 
the first thought is not always, wow, I wonder how I can make this the best EP possible. It's what are my friends going to think or how is the reaction going to be? And I think, like you said, with like Instagram and that, looking back into it, that it's such a hindrance for, for creativity. I, I completely agree. And it's, it's a, I think leaving high school and leaving those, you leave a routine and a friend group um, that you're familiar with. And then you are exposed to, to new things and, and, um, like you mentioned in episode two, the podcast with Seaclair, um, you sh- there should be an awakening, and there should be you should become more conscious about about certain issues. And sometimes your friends don't don't share those issues, um, and it can be a difficult thing when you when you embark on a creative project that that um, attempts to to address them, um, and it, it can be rejected, and you and you can lose those support systems. Um, is, is, is that sort of what you, you, you're alluding to? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and I also think in certain aspects, um, creativity or making things is glamorized to the extent that someone sees something online, they go, oh, that looks so cool. I could do it or, you know, and the reality is creating things and narratives and stories and objects is very hard. It's very, it's a very hard thing to do. So I think if you can get over that hump of rejection or being like, oh, Jesus, this is actually a lot harder than I thought it would be, then, then there's this, a fantastic world waiting for you. Because I, I don't think, I think creativity is probably one of the major defining factors in what makes us human. And so why wouldn't you bask in it in any opportunity? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think if you if you truly want to be successful as a creative, you have to abandon that ego um, of what people think, and you you have to find truth in what you're producing and what you're making. And if you don't, it does become a very surface level reflection um, of you, and 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 that and that that reflection, that stuff that you end up producing is just an attempt to pander to to those that are more successful than you on Instagram. And I think that that is is very harmful and, and harmful thing. No, absolutely. And speaking of the ego, it leads me very nicely to uh, my next point I wanted to bring up with you. What happened to your acting? Acting. Um, look, I'll, I'll always have a, a great love of, of acting. Um, and if I have the time and someone offers me a role, I'll always do it. Um, but uh, there, there's a great quote from Matthew McConaughey's character, Rustin Cole. And season one of true detective which was uh life is barely long enough to get good at one thing so be careful about what you get good at and i that, that struck home with me my interests are, are spread um all over the place and so i had to prioritize uh you know architecture and and, and work and and design and music and acting was just the the one that had to get sidelined a bit so i'll always love it it, it hasn't gone anywhere but but certainly not my priority right now no, absolutely. I, I love that that quote you brought up. Um, wow, True Detective season one was fantastic. Season two got kind of weird. Oh, it's brilliant. But no, ab- absolutely what you're saying there, I, I completely agree with. And it's that whole jack of all trades, master of none. And I think our generation, that's quite a, a scary a scary confrontation that we have to make. I've certainly myself been like, oh, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that. I could be good at that. I could be good at that. And then you end up being like, ah, I was just on Pinterest for seven hours. I'm not good at anything. So it's, it is, it can be quite a, 
it can be quite a daunting task to actually find what you're going to do and pursue. But I, I also, while saying that, I think more now more than ever, there is an opportunity to dabble in everything. I mean, you've got your graphic design that you're doing. Um, and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for the Kids Eat Toast Sometimes art. It's the only reason you're on the podcast tonight. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Um, all right. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, no, I, I like the podcast, and I was I was doodling that whilst listening to to the episode with Sihle. Um So I'm glad you like. No, no, I, lo- I love it. Um, but briefly on that, your graphic design is that also just the side hustle that comes from all the skills you amassed during your time in architecture? Yeah, I, I certainly learned some skills. Um, in terms of, of digital tools and, and Photoshop and Illustrator and other sort of um, representational programs. I, I learned that in architecture. Um, and the, the illustration has, has always been a great passion of mine and interest of mine from a young age. So I just thought you know, it, was a, it was a way to make some, some pocket cash whilst I was studying. Um, and I suppose uh, I thought quarantine provided me with an opportunity to, to sort of establish that um, more firmly. Yeah. For sure, and, and you've alluded briefly to it, but how, how do you kind of draw the line between helping someone out, as you did in my case, or being like, this is my rate, because it's it's quite a popular thread on social media now, but um, you, you can't pay the bills with exposure, and that sort of argument. So wh- where do you, because it is a very hard line to draw. It is, look, um, I will... If the, if it's a if it's a good initiative like the like the ones I was mentioning earlier, um, and you can use your 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 talent for the right reason, then um, under the assumption that I have any talent, uh, but you can and if you can use your talent for the right reason, then I think you should. And so so for those things, I'll, of course, I'll try and get involved with um, with working in that capacity for free. Um, but but if a if a, a company like a I've had a few companies approach me for for redesigning their brand identity. They they get immediate hourly rates <laughs> given nice. to them. Yeah, I'm not doing this from the goodness of my heart, McDonald's. Your rebranding is gonna cost you. I like that. I like that. And but no, I I was very very happy when you did get in touch. And the first thing it kind of reminded me of was that horrendous house play we were in. It must have been 2015. Yeah, my God, yeah, for sure, for sure. What is your recollection of that? Um, so, so we both acted in that that house play. Obviously, again, that that was the result. I think largely of the the parameters set up by that Model C institution. And uh, um, I can't speak for the writers of the script, but I think it was an attempt at a, a sort of comedic a comedic attempt at exploring diversity within South Africa in a way that is was was incredibly problematic and. Um, it certainly hasn't aged very well. And I remember you and I acting in that. That was actually the, one of the first times I met you, yeah. Yeah, no, I, at the time, it was, I thought it was fantastic. It was funny. It got lots of laughs. And that, I mean, in high school, those are worth their weight in gold. But when, when I sent it to you earlier today and when I read it myself, I actually, between like the convulsive moments of cringing I also there's like the blatant racism and of course I mean like you said I like how you just took all the the blame off us and put it onto the institution I'm a fan of that <laughs> mode of inquiry but it, it made me think of my experience with high school 
and how looking back at it i i would i wouldn't say white white guilt white guilt is probably the best way to describe it in terms of the vocabulary we have today and is that something you find yourself afflicted by uh, certainly not affl afflicted is not the right word uh, white guilt certainly influences um decision making and i think uh creative decision making um in the context of this podcast and i think for for a lot of people white guilt um for some it acts as a kind of behavioral mechanism which makes them approach discourse with with a greater degree of trepidation which i suppose is positive because they become far less defensive about their privilege and then for some um the demographic of of uh <laughs> who you described as as woke whites they kind of senselessly handed to their peers um without ever really involving themselves in a discourse and then sort of hence undermine that discourse when they return home and indulge in the problematic systems they were just discussing and so i should like to hope that that most um most creatives are prompted by their their white guilt to uh to use their talent for the right reasons for sure and i i like how you disagreed with the the term affliction for me it it was certainly an affliction and i remember going through it was during fees must fall i just felt very sad and stroppy to be a white person because of all of this and the systematic oppression and and i was like oh but then again like you say that's almost more of a narcissistic model where you're feeling sorry for yourself and not actually doing anything so exactly like you've said if you can use white guilt or whatever you want to refer to it as um as a driving force behind making informed decisions involving people and all that sort of stuff then it becomes very powerful and i think i think that's where we we need to be heading towards as white members of of society and as much as one has a dose of white guilt in the morning it's almost and you've alluded to it briefly almost always accompanied by a white amnesia there is a collective amnesia um amongst the greater portion the large majority of of white people and and it is something that we need to change especially like we were speaking about earlier with the means we have available for sure i i, I but i mean i i would almost slightly disagree and i think to exist in, in south africa you almost do need and this is across all lines i mean you do need to have that ability to briefly forget because if you cast your mind to the poverty and suffering of the nation then and stick with that it, things can be quite upsetting but let's move away from this and some theme into and into a territory which young people don't really like talking about and that is of course politics i've found in my experience that the 21st century cop out is just simply to say like oh i don't believe in politics or politics is gross i hate the abuse of power and then that's the end of the conversation what's your take of course look i'm i'm certainly no authority on on south african politics or any politics for that matter but i do think that what is what is clear um is that south africa is is one of the most unequal countries in the world certainly one of the highest rates of inequality and and to combat that is the what's required is a is a drastic paradigm shift and it's my current belief that the two majority parties aren't going to provide that paradigm shift so you have to consider other options that's my that's my my standing so to speak the majority parties being the ANC and the DA yeah 
Okay, cool. And then, oh, Sigla would be very upset to hear that you haven't included the EFF in the, <laughs> but the majority. But it's not that I. It's not that I haven't included. Of course, the EFF is the next significant. Um, mm. The 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 two majorities. Of course, the EFF is the the next significant party. Um, and and I think that they are capable of that paradigm shift, um, of achieving that paradigm shift, but. You have to analyze uh, polities of each political party and, and see how strongly you align with them. And I don't want to <laughs> simply disclose who I'm going to vote for on the, on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I've also found that weird. And by no means am I, I trying to offend you or anything like that. But it's this um, societal trend that people, I mean, from your um, dad to his grandparents to your great-grandparents, People don't like talking about who they're um, voting for. And I've always found that very puzzling because for me, it's become, it's, for me, it's like, well, this is how I view myself ideologically and this is what I'm doing. So this is who I'm voting for. And I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, by no means an attack on your opinions or how you um, conduct yourself. But I just, I've thought it's this very odd trend in society. Maybe, maybe I'm weird. Maybe I don't get it. But I think what you've alluded to in terms of the two current parties and the DA and the ANC being unable to lead a, a paradigm shift is very true. And that's what makes the, the EFF um, so appealing. But again, a certain populist narratives and leaders amongst the EFF would um, lead to a great dissuasion from voters, especially the white population, which um, leads me to my... Which, when I'm thinking about it, I, I kind of thought there is no white, there is no party for young white South Africans. And I think that's actually good because we're a, a tiny minority and that for the first time that seems like the right sort of conversation. It shouldn't be like, which party do I identify with? And if I can't find one, it's not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think. Yeah, look, I think... Um... Well, it, it, begs a que- it begs questions about identity politics. And um, would, you, would you agree that the, those have proven to be quite um, uh, dangerous in the past and in history? Of course. I mean, everyone, everyone tries to steer away from identity politics. But I think in the end, when it's all stripped down to or brass tax, it, it is simply about identity politics. Or do you do you have a different opinion? Um, well, I, I certainly think one's one's identity plays a role. Um, it's a difficult question to answer, but I think that. Uh, I think that group identity can be a dangerous thing in the, in the same light that um, take, take toxic masculinity, for example, when a group of, of, of teenage boys get together, they often feel that they, their actions are justified and, and masked behind this idea of a group. Um, and so they can do whatever they want. And that's a, that's a dangerous and it's a toxic thing. Um, and that, that essentially serves as an analogy for, for group identity and, and group um, making group identity of, uh, you know, a central value, I think it, it, is, it has the potential to be very dangerous. Would you uh, agree with that? I think it, it, um, it greatly rests on how you view and kind of frame identity. Cool. Whilst uh, Zoom has let us down and we've had camera malfunction and all sorts, we were able to briefly discuss how weird it was 
to have um, political conversations and put your opinions out there, especially when it is being recorded. And I think this is a very necessary thing to do, whether this sort of video prompts friend groups having these sorts of discussions or make someone interrogate their own beliefs. They're all very important things for us to become critical thinkers in our society. But it also makes me question why why isn't why why does politics have such a hard time finding root amongst the youth? And and that this is a historical fact. Uh, I don't know, perhaps um, what's well, that old thing of ignorance is bliss. And I think a lot of young people um, don't, don't critically assess how they could be adversely affected um, by the outcome of, 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 of politics and, and, and who they vote for. Um, and so a lot of people just inherit uh, their, their parents' political parties um, as a result of retirements that are uttered, which, which you, you never really critically assess. Um, and so I think that's why a lot of young people divorce themselves from politics and a lot of people, and for, for, for various reasons, some people, like you said, just think oh, it's too much and, and every, all the informants are so overwhelming um, uh, to make it and other people just, just blindly inherit their, their families, political parties. And, and yeah, I think, well, perhaps that, that serves as some form of an answer. No, for sure. It certainly does. Um, my biggest bone to pick with this or bone of contention is that, um, very simply put, politics is about power. And power is about the ability to manipulate or influence another's will or actions. And if you look at that, you should be like, alarm bells should start ringing and be like, well, I need to be politically sound or invested or know what's, what's going on. And I'm not saying you have to declare your love for a party or say you're a card-carrying member of the DA, <laughs> can you think of anything lamer? Anyway, and um, but it's important to interrogate beliefs and chat to people and have these conversations because otherwise, by just putting your hand up and saying, "Oh, it doesn't interest me," or you you um, leave yourself very, very vulnerable to being to being manipulated. I mean, of course, Brexit's been one of the most blatant examples uh, that huge youth demographic didn't show up. And ultimately, you've got a lot of old people making a decision on your behalf. You can look at representation in Parliament across gender lines. You don't have young women in Parliament. And of course, that's dealing with other structural issues, but then representation goes amiss. So it, it's, it's very hard and it's very tricky. And even, and I'm, I'm rambling a bit, it's one of my many, well, one of my limited talents. And if you look at Fees Must Fall, one of the most groundbreaking moment certainly in my lifetime that is driven by young people revolutions historically are driven by young hungry people who can really um, take up issue and gather themselves and we've got social media so we're more more connected than ever but we also suffer from this odd disconnect it's all very interesting i i agree and i think that look uh something that is highly unfortunate amongst white South Africans, and I think the reason why why that that portion is is not particularly interested in politics is because they feel as though the outcome won't adversely affect them. And the same applies to to fees must fall. That every so many white um, white people was were saying the same thing about like I think you discussed it with Sikhle, but these ideas of oh 
Um, it, it's an attempt to disrupt uh, studying and studies and, and finals, and, and it's a completely ridiculous notion. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, that that issue and, and, and that those historical narratives also contribute to the fact that that demographic is is negligent about politics. No, absolutely. And I mean, just looking at, at the EFF, I seem to spend a lot of time talking about white people and the EFF. It's an interesting <laughs> um, dynamic. But if you look at the EFF, the, they, they've captured the SRCs across all universities, almost all university campuses in South Africa. So that kind of shows where, where the message has taken, taken root. But enough of that. The final thing I really want to know is, where do you see yourself heading? Is it um, nailing that eight to five at a firm? Or are you chasing that music success? Do you think you could fall back into acting and make me a happy man? Or where, where are you... Where are you leaning at the moment? Um, look, if I'm honest with you, Sam, I'm going to continue doing the, the, the eight or fives to support myself, but I really hope that one of these creative projects eventually takes root and that one of those creative projects um, contributes to the world in some way in the future, I suppose. Uh, that would be the answer to that. Okay. So, but, and that's the thing. Creativity means so many different things. It doesn't mean you have to be, become a musician or, you know, be an actor, that sort of stuff. Architecture is fantastic because it is this fantastically creative domain in itself, but it's very exciting. And my, my last question, I think I say last question about 12 times every podcast, but last thing I want to know is, do you see yourself living in South Africa? For the for the rest of your life. Certainly, I, I do see myself living in South Africa. Um, again, we discussed most of these themes throughout the podcast, but it it begs the question about what you want out of your life, and, and not just where you want to be. Um, and 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 that links quite deeply with 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 your moral compass. And I suppose that, and like we we mentioned about creativity and using your talents for the right reason, I think that, yeah, I do hope to, to contribute uh, to the country in some way. I love South Africa, if you want a patriotic answer, Sam. <laughs> no, it, it's just interesting. And I love that answer. I really do, because nothing makes me freak out, like hearing, especially people in the creative industry speak like, yeah, no, 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 sorry, there's just no, there's no opportunity here. I'm going to London, or I'm going to the US, that sort of stuff. I'm like, there is the most creative opportunity in South Africa ever. I mean, it's such a diverse place. There's so many multi-layered problems that provoke thoughts, not only existential, but otherwise. I couldn't think of living in a more exciting country. And of course, that is with um, um, without neglecting the, the bountiful white privilege that I have vats of but I, I i'm very happy that you intend on staying in the country and making a difference warms my heart <laughs> that's good that's good <laughs> yeah but no ben thank you so much for coming on i've loved um antagonizing white people and covering the complex array of issues that we've touched on and i love what you're doing i appreciate all the work that you are doing for fellow creatives you certainly inspired me in, a, in certain ways. So 
Thanks for being you. Thanks for doing you. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Sam. There we go. Another episode of Kids Eat Toast Sometimes, a thing of the past. Again, we spent a lot of time talking about white people. How odd. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. When you do, thanks for liking. And thanks for subscribing on YouTube. We'll be back again next week. Thanks so much.